Well, as those parents continue to make their way in from the trek downstairs, I would encourage you all, open your Bibles to Colossians 1. We are going to be starting this year, kicking off in Colossians. And as you open your Bibles, I have a question for you. It seems really, really loud, but maybe not. It's tinny. It's tinny. The official word from our sponsor up front. So question for you. Appreciate a show of hands. Good luck. I didn't ask them to clap, Jason. I just asked them to show their hands. <laughs> Can only go up from here, right? <laughs> How many of y'all have taken some time over the last few weeks pausing, considering what 2023 might hold? Anybody? Raise your hand. Excellent. How many of those who raised their hand, and this is no judgment on those who haven't done anything, okay? How many of those who have taken that time actually used what God did in 22 in your life as the basis for thinking about what 23 might hold? Anybody? So a percentage of them. Um, I know in my own time with the Lord, I've done that considering our life as a family, but also the life of this church, the local body. And I can say without hesitation and with full confidence that the Lord has been gracious to us. Amen. Just the fact that we are gathered here is evidence. We get to gather freely. The Lord has granted new life. We have lots of little babies from this past year. The Lord has brought new members. The Lord has strengthened relationships. The Lord has knit relationships together in that sacrament of marriage that we've celebrated this past year. We've witnessed the Lord raise up leaders. You saw Rebecca and Rachel stand here today. Margaret raised her hand and somebody was absent. And the list goes on. From a corporate body perspective, we spent 22, if you recall, focusing in on what it looks like to stand firm. We were standing firm in Christ on His Word with one another. And we got to witness the one another's throughout the year. As a body, we've been equipped to know God more. We've been equipped to embrace His Son and to remain strong against the winds of culture. Living in a world where culture is trying to impose itself upon us, that's opposed to Christ, that's opposed to things that honor the Lord, requires us to stand firm, to be strong. 1 Corinthians 15 says we're to stand firm in our faith. Ephesians 6 says it requires us to stay, take a stand against the enemy. Jude says it's required us to stand up for the truth. And James says it requires us to stand up for the vulnerable. 
and those who are unable to stand for ourselves. And I believe that in 2022, this body was better equipped to do that. But as we elders prayerfully considered what God had for us then and what He's intending for us moving forward in 23, we recognize that He has lifted us out of a community and placed us in a new one. This is a new place. Uh, Kurt Lilliquist and I were talking about the individual who owns the black car that has left it here for months. The people who have gathered here for years know who it is. And they gave them permission to actually keep it there. But it broke down. And so it sits there. This is a new community. When Kurt told me today it broke down, I said, well, why don't we fix it? Instead of complaining about it, instead of calling, you know, somebody get it towed away, fix it. We're in a new community. Even if this place is temporary, only for a year or two years or three years, this is an incredible, incredible place to gather. He's raised up leaders. He's done those things I mentioned. And I believe, we believe that the Lord is asking us as we are equipped to stand firm to maintain an eternal perspective as we engage the culture right here. If you recall, God led the Israelites through the wilderness for 40 years. They didn't have a permanent place to gather, did they? They were led very clearly by night by this fire and a cloud by day. I believe and I trust He will guide us in a similar way. So what does he require us two weeks ago, Micah 6, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God? Friends, that's what he requires of us in 2023. So we believe that as we move into 23, God is directing us to intentionally and humbly connect with this community that he's placed us in to find ways to mercifully love people as He has loved us and to make every effort to reach the lost. Just in case you missed it or took it as a throwaway, it is not. God is intentionally intending us to live here humbly, grateful for where He's placed us, to find specific ways to mercifully love his people, and to make every effort we can to reach the lost. And if that means we fix a car out there, I'm sure there's a whole folks group of folks that love to fix it and other people that love to watch. <laughs> that is why we decided to start this year in the book of Colossians. See, God is directing us, simply put, to understand internalize and display this year the compassion of Christ. Understand, internalize, and display the compassion of Christ. And in Colossians, Paul is speaking to members of God's family. He has the ever-present compassion of Christ on his mind, and he encourages the Colossians and us to actually participate in the mission of the gospel. Because we are Christ's, 
we're instructed to think like Christ, to live like Christ, and to love like Christ. In effect, Paul's saying, be compassionate as Christ has been compassionate towards you. Now, what's interesting is that although Paul's overarching intent of this letter is actually to bring correction, especially given the fact there are pretty, some pretty significant Christological errors that you find in this letter, he brings forth this correction compassionately. See, he doesn't use a stern rebuke. He's not confrontational as he was with the church in Galatia where he started, oh, you foolish Galatians. How'd that be a letter that you get? Instead, he uses a winsome tone. He celebrates evidences of their faith and he lovingly encourages them to grow in the practical outworking of their devotion to the Lord Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to see how Paul intends for followers of Jesus to be compassionate as Christ is compassionate in the way we pray for one another. He does this by sharing a prayer that reveals how our identity in Christ, who we are because of what Christ has done for us, translates into our responsibilities as disciples of Christ. So let's dive in. Follow along with me as I begin reading Colossians 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, for those of you who are familiar with the New Testament, you are familiar with that type of greeting. It's similar to what you find in Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Timothy, and Titus. Because of that, it's easy to overlook it. Just set it aside. We'll get into the real stuff. But see, for the Colossian church, his identification as an apostle of Christ Jesus is particularly important. See, first, in chapter 2-1, if you just look over there for a second, you see that many there do not know who Paul is. He says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. And because of the doctrinal issues he's going to address in the letter, he's stating from the outset of the letter that he's actually qualified to address them. And he's saying he's qualified by the Lord Jesus himself personally. See, as an apostle, if you look in Acts, you know that he encountered the resurrected Lord. He received his message directly from Jesus Christ and was recognized by the other leaders of the church as an apostle. His apostleship serves as the basis through which he's able to confidently declare doctrinal truth about Jesus and then refute the false teachers among them. How many of you have written a letter to someone you know? It's relatively easy or it can be. 
Now imagine writing a letter of refutation to someone you've never met. Much more challenging. And here has he said, um, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, or Colossae, depending on who you're listening to, we're reminded that every believer has significance. See, because every believer has been called by God individually. So whether you are a student or a teacher, an Uber driver, a stay-at-home mom or a stay-at-home dad, a distiller, a public servant, a quick service drive through worker, a pilot, an executive, or you're retired, as a follower of Jesus, you are a member of God's kingdom family. And you've been called personally. And though you have been individually called, you have not been called to be an individual. See, Paul writes to the saints and faithful brothers, there is a communal nature to your calling that you should embrace and celebrate. If you are not embracing the communal nature of being a follower of Jesus, you're missing out on the best part. See, the Christian life is not about living for yourself. It's about you living with others for others. Mark writes, Christ came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so through that, Paul extends grace to you and peace from God collectively. I believe if he was from Texas, it'd say grace to y'all. See, our common faith in Christ unites us together as brothers and sisters. That means that we are a family who loves one another. It means we're a family who supports one another. It means we're a family who encourages one another and cares for one another. We are joined together as members of Christ's body to collectively serve Christ. Paul then celebrates this uniting that he's talking about here as he begins to pray in verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Now, I'm not sure if you caught it, but this prayer is twofold. In this little section, Paul applauds God for their salvation. And he appeals to God for their sanctification. 
See, this twofold prayer serves as a model for the readers or the hearers in that it instructs and it informs. It instructs us how we should pray for one another, and it also helps us understand God's gracious gift of redemption. It instructs and it informs. And as a result, it promotes and encourages and fosters gratitude to God. Now, if you're, if you're pausing for a second, thinking about the context, Paul is writing this never having been there. So what prompts Paul to thank God always for them? Well, he heard about their faith. See, this is critical to understand. Heard here is important, not just because it's repeated four times in this passage. The fact that Paul heard about their faith points to a reality about the followers of Jesus that we should pay attention to. For folks to speak about believers who have these things, it means that the faith in the lives of these Christ followers was incredible. It was noteworthy. It was worthy to be shared. We don't share the common things because they're common. These folks must have been living out what they believed, what they were taught, what they had heard. What's even more interesting is that Paul prays as though he knows them. He didn't. He never visited Colossae. He didn't plant this church. Epaphras did. And yet, because others are talking about them, he feels like he knows them. So you say, well, how did they come to know? Well, if you look in Acts, specifically chapter 19, you can kind of triangulate things to understand. It's generally understood that the church in Colossae was planted after Paul had been teaching visitors daily in the halls of Tyrannus. So here's Paul in a different space, taking time day in, day out, day in, day out to teach people about Jesus. And so let's do a quick little walk through history of how it might play out. Epaphras travels to Colossae because it was necessary for trade. Here's the good news of the gospel as Paul's teaching it in the halls. Epaphras responds to the call to follow Jesus. He comes to know the Lord, and on account of Paul's consistent exposition of the gospel, he realizes that others need to hear that, so he returns to Colossae, and he shares the good news with family and friends, who in turn respond to the gospel, and a church is birthed. God works a miracle in a neighboring town, and those who hear the gospel as Epaphras shares it. Now, I don't know about you, most people think you have to be formally trained to share the gospel. Here's a guy who heard it and said, you know what, I just have to share this with other people. Every single one of us has that instruction, has that responsibility, better yet, has that privilege. And then it gets better. 
Those in Colossae didn't just hear what Epaphras had to say. They heard, they listened, they responded, and they acted. They respond to what they're hearing, their lives change as a result, people around them can't stop talking about it, and somehow news gets back to Paul that this is what happened in a place you've never been to. And as we go through the letter, you'll see there are certain things that somehow they picked up along the way, in particular that you had to be works-oriented in your faith, that Paul needed to write them about and say, hey, let's just straighten these things out. So what's so different about these folks? Their faith characterized their lives. Paul heard about the Colossians' faith in Christ Jesus, verse 4. He heard about their love for one another, also in verse 4. That's grounded in hope, verse 5. On account of gospel truth, verse 5. That's bearing fruit and growing, verse 6. Not just in the world, but among the body in Colossae, verse 6. This means their faith wasn't simply mental, it wasn't philosophical. Their faith was practical. Orthodoxy met orthopraxy. So let's look a little more closely at these descriptions because clearly it mattered for Paul to hear about it. So verse 4, we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Paul applauds God's work in the Colossian church because they were trusting in Christ Jesus alone. The result is their lives are different. They've been transformed. But follow this back in verse 3. We understand that he's not congratulating them for living differently. Hear that. He's applauding and thanking God for God's work in them. He's not saying, I praise you Colossians for what you're doing. We thank God because of what we have heard. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Paul uses the Greek word here, agape. Most of you know that agape means sacrificial love. Their love reflected Christ's compassionate, sacrificial love towards them. This is evidenced by their redeemed heart. It communicates that this is the characteristic of Christ's followers for us. Our love and affection for all the saints should be the same. It proceeds from the undeserved love that we have from Christ, and it's evidenced in the way we engage the world around us. He goes on, he says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. The Colossians' faith and love are simply the byproducts of their foundational hope. Think about that. Their hope in Jesus is the genesis, it's the start, it's the origin of this persistent faith and tangible love that causes people to talk about it. They look to the objective reality that's await them. What's laid up for you in heaven. It's not what you have received. It's actually what's laid up for you. See, Paul's reminding us that this, what awaits us in heaven is actually the anchor of our soul. 
Because what awaits us is certain, we can live confidently. We can live contentedly here now. So verse 5b, what is their hope? Well, it's the word of truth, the gospel. Now, that phrase, the word, is used a whole bunch of times throughout this letter. But each time it's used, he uses a various modifier to clarify what part of the word he's talking about. Here, he says the word of truth, the gospel. As he's using this modifier, he's emphasizing the preeminent or the salvific nature of the gospel. And if you read through the book, you'll see that the word of truth contrasts the false teaching of the works-oriented gospel that the Colossians were experiencing. He's saying, guys, the gospel cannot be earned. The gospel is completely undeserved. And that reality, that it's God's grace alone that saves us, is humbling. And it naturally motivates us to share the news because it's totally different. So as we find these repeated phrases here, you heard you heard, it's come to you, you've learned it. Paul's emphasizing that God uses people as instruments in communicating the faith. Paul uses everyday people as the instruments to communicate the faith. Remember the third part of our intent for 2023? Eagerly find any opportunity to reach the lost. It's right here. So what's that mean? That means that as followers of Jesus, we've been given the privilege and the honor of being responsible for sharing the good news. As citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we have a duty to share the good news with others. And as members of God's family, we get to celebrate the love we have between us. Our prayer as elders is that your faith in Jesus plays out in practical, tangible, noticeable ways as you love one another and seek to reach the lost. We pray that you would model the compassion of Christ, not out of duty, no, because of the hope that awaits you in heaven. See, for love to be noticeable, though, relationship is required. Time together is essential. Intentionality is necessary. In the context of the passage, it's time with the Colossian church, or at least the people in Colossae, that provided Epaphras the opportunity to teach them, did it not? And it was Paul who was teaching in the halls of Tyrannus day and day and day and day. It was time between Paul and Epaphras hearing it that enabled Paul and those with him to hear how the Colossians were living when Epaphras came back and said, hey, you got to hear this. You know, I knew we were going here, and for the last five weeks I've been able to think about this passage. I get a benefit. I get to think about the love that I've seen displayed within the body. 
One of the privileges we have as elders is that we often get to hear what Christ is doing in your lives. Yes, we get to see it personally, but oftentimes we get to hear from one another. And I know for myself and in the meetings that we have, when we hear people serving one another, people loving one another, people just serving one another in very practical, tangible ways, we are encouraged. That's why it's important to celebrate. To celebrate, to talk about the love of Christ, the work of Christ. As you see Christ functioning in the lives of people around you, celebrate it. Talk about it. Let others know about it. I know I need it. My guess is each of you needs it. See, it's fruitful to other souls to hear how Christ is at work among the body. And how do we know that? Because in verse 9, Paul responds in prayer because of hearing about it. Look at this. He says, and so. So first part, we thank God because of these things. And because of these things, and so, from the day we heard, and what he's talking about here is what he heard about what's going on in, in Colossae, we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So what are we to pray for? I like to be a big picture guy. Here's the simple. Beg God to do what God does. Simply beg God to do what God does. See, God through His Spirit works in us to conform us more and more into Christ. And what Paul shows here is there are four ways in which you are conformed into Christ that we see in this passage. <clears throat> First of all, we're conformed to Christ in our minds. It says, filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom, increasing in the knowledge of God. That occurs up here. Our minds are conformed to Christ. Pretty sure somewhere else in Paul's letters, he talks about do not be conformed. Because we're supposed to be conformed into Christ. Secondly, we're conformed to Christ in our actions. says right here, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit. Goes from our mind into the way we live, into the things that we do. Third, we are conformed to Christ in our character. It says, strengthened with all power for endurance and patience with joy. And then lastly, we are conformed to Christ relationally. 
says we are qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints. Relationally, we are His. Beg God to do what God does. He begs God to qualify those who are God's to be God's people to live as God calls them to live. Now this idea of being qualified I believe requires a little more explanation. If you haven't done it already I would encourage you to circle, underline, bracket, highlight, do something to qualified. Grasping that word is critical. Friends, by our nature, apart from His divine grace, we are disqualified, not simply unqualified. Let me explain that. Paul writes to Titus, chapter 1, verse 16, says they profess, he's talking about unbelievers, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Now you look there, you say, well, I don't see disqualified there. Well, that's because in the English it's terrible, but in the Greek it's the same word there as you see in 2 Timothy 3. Where he's going all the way back to the Old Testament. And he says, these men also oppose the truth men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. See, that's our condition apart from God's grace, friends. We are disqualified, not simply unqualified. There's a difference between these two words practically. Let me illustrate. If a team is disqualified from participating in the Olympics, it means they don't have an opportunity to participate. It can happen beforehand. Entire countries have been disqualified. So then they create just kind of an IOC little team so that way athletes can somehow participate, but not the country. I won't get on that soapbox right now. But in the middle of a race especially when you're dealing with like the 4 by 100 where you have to pass the baton. If you receive the baton too late or you get out of your lane, you are disqualified, no longer able to participate, nothing, nada, no opportunity, done. See, there's nothing from somebody who's been disqualified from participating that they can do to be requalified to participate. If a team is unqualified, though, it means they simply haven't yet earned the opportunity to participate. Y'all familiar with the movie Cool Runnings? Yeah? It's about the Jamaican bobsled team. For those of you who have no idea about Cool Runnings, think about Jamaican bobsled. They really don't go together, do they? Well, the reality was Jamaican bobsled team qualified for the Olympics for the first time in history in 1988. How did they do that? Well, they hired a U.S. bobsled coach. And they identified people who had competed in the U.S. who were really good sprinters 
And then they went and took their team and traveled somewhere so they could figure out what bobsled looked like. And so they went from being unqualified to qualified. It was through their effort that they became qualified. Friends, we're not simply unqualified as if we have to do something to earn the right to be qualified. Apart from God's grace, we are disqualified. So then the question arises, since we're disqualified and we can't do anything to somehow become qualified, how did we become qualified if it's not through our effort? Paul addresses it in verse 13 and 14. And I promise we'll get there, but not right now. I'm going to leave you hanging for a minute. Because he does. For now, understand that Paul celebrates this reality that the qualification has been accomplished. And he thanks the Lord for it. He applauds God's work in doing it and prays to the Father on behalf of those God has done it to. Now, Paul gets this idea to pray this way for the saints from our Lord. See, Jesus modeled the idea of praying for the saints when he walked on earth as well. In John 17, everybody talks about the priestly prayer. We find our Lord praying to the Father for us, for the saints. Jesus prays for his followers. This is important. Specifically in John 17, 9, Jesus says he's not praying for the world, but for those God gave to him. And in this prayer of Jesus, Christ's compassion is on full display. And you know what? As Jesus prays in John 17, he prays that we would be conformed to Christ in the exact same four ways. That we would be conformed in mind. Verse 3. Of 17, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That we would be conformed in action. Verse 26, that love may be in them and displayed through them. That we would be conformed in character, 17 through 19, sanctified in the truth. And that we would be conformed relationally to him, glory given that we may become perfectly one with him. Same four things. And here, in Colossians 1, 9 through 14, Paul is praying for those who God has qualified to share in the kingdom. That they would be conformed to Christ in the same way. Friends, that means that we, in turn, should learn from their example and pray for one another that we would be more and more and more and more conformed to Christ. And in this part of the verse, Paul's connecting his applauding of what God has done with his appeal to God to continue doing what God does. There's a parallel between 3 through 8 and 9 through 13. First, there's thanksgiving. You see it in verse 3 and verse 12. There's a prayer specifically, verse 3 and verse 9. The fact that they heard about the gospel, verse 4 and verse 9. 
that it's bearing fruit and growing, verses 6 and verse 10, and that they are saints relationally connected to the Father in 4 and 12. So same thing, repeated. And when something's repeated in Scripture, it's important. Here's the themes of Paul's prayer. Now what don't you see in Paul's prayer? He doesn't ask them to be protected. He doesn't ask for the situations they find themselves in to be corrected. He doesn't ask that things would go well with them. Paul intercedes on behalf of the believers at Colossae, not because of their present circumstances, but because of their eternal position. So now let's zoom in on this specific prayer so we can understand how to best pray for one another. Verse 10. He says, We we have not ceased to pray that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. Paul... Paul is inferring or intimating or even specifically directing that believers should long to please Christ. For those who spent some time thinking about 2023, at the top of your list of what 23 might hold, did you have that this year I might please Christ? It's a hard question not what naturally comes to mind. It says, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. That means that our lives are consistent with our identity as saints, of our calling of the gospel of Christ and God Himself. Scott Pace is the chair at Southeastern Seminary, Department of Preaching, and I remember reading him describe the idea of being worthy this way. So I had to go find it. I knew where it was in the book. It took me forever because it was on the left side and it was highlighted in pink. <laughs> page after page after page. Visual learner. <laughs> Scott Pace describes the idea of being worthy this way. Comprehensively living in submission and surrender rather than living in comfort and convenience. Comprehensively living in submission and surrender, rather than living in comfort and convenience. I realized that if I would have put that phrase at the top of my 2023 list, it would have changed my priorities for the year. So in this prayer, Paul uses four parallel ING verbs. I like participles. Bill prefers ING verbs to describe what it looks like to fulfill God's will for our lives. These not necessarily, they are not necessarily gerunds, but they're ING verbs. Now it's disappointing that these four are not always recognized in English translations. I found five or six where you couldn't actually find them. But here are the four. These are the other things should, that should probably be underlined in your Bible because they matter, because they're instructive. 
give you the list and then we'll walk through them one by one. Verse 10, bearing fruit. Verse 10, growing. Verse 11, be strengthened or being strengthened depending on your translation. And verse 12, giving thanks. These four verbs, bearing fruit, growing, being strengthened, and giving thanks, collectively describe practical ongoing actions that are present as we live our calling as believers. So let's look at the first one, bearing fruit in every good work. Now, interestingly, in verse 6, Paul references the work of the gospel that was occurring throughout the world. But now he uses the phrase, bearing fruit in every good work, to describe the specific work the gospel performs in the life of Christ's followers, not just what's going on in the world. James says that genuine faith produces what? Good works. It's not good works that produces genuine faith. Titus describes Christians as those who are zealous for good works. These works are the fruit of the Spirit, which you find in Galatians 5, which distinguish us as disciples of Christ. His will here is for us to walk in the works that He's prepared for us. And then if you turn back a page in your book, you'd see Philippians 2.13, where it says He enables us to perform those good works. Talk about a gracious God. He instructs us to do something, and then He enables us to do it. Pray that God would do what God does. Secondly, in our list, we find that we are to be growing in the knowledge of God. See, Paul connects the persistently growing nature of the gospel back in verse 5 with the practical experience of deeper relationship with God in the lives of believers. 2 Peter 3.18 teaches us that our relationship with the Lord is designed to grow in intimacy and depth. Jeremiah in chapter 9, verse 23, calls us to set that growth that we be relationally connected with the Lord in a deeper way as our highest priority in life. It's not just Paul. Practically speaking, regular habits of communicating with God in prayer, listening to Him as we read His Word, and applying His Word through obedience, not only enable us to discern His will, but equip us to fulfill it. Our tangible and intentional submission to the Lord enables His will to become our will. We don't have to somehow seek His will. Our tangible and intentional submission to the Lord enables His will to become our will. Thirdly, believers in Jesus are regularly being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. Friends, how many of you are desperate for His strength? Uh-huh. We know, have an idea of the life He's called us to live. And I know I can't get there on my own. I am desperate for His strength. 
When considered in the light of Ephesians 3, we understand that fulfilling God's will requires some type of emotional and physical stamina that can only come through the Lord. We don't have it ourselves. I've had people say, yeah, I'm willing to get together with you kind of when I get things in order. Like once I've got things figured out in this situation, then we can get together and have coffee. And you're looking at them going, brother, like you're missing out on the part that can help you. It's not that I can help. It's the body that can help. When we submit to the will of the Father and recognize we're called into a community of believers. Now guess what? This verb, being strengthened, is passive. It emphasizes that it's the Lord who is at work, not you. Marketers would love this. Like this is the ultimate exercise solution. You don't have to do a darn thing this other thing is going to do all the work for you. Have you ever heard that? Every fad that's on TV is about something else doing the work. When it comes to physical training, nothing else does the work except your own effort. It's the opposite of spiritual growth. He gives us everything we need. We have to submit to Him. See, according to this passage, our Lord uses all power. Not the leftovers, not some power. He uses all power to bring this about and His glorious might. How big is that? That's big. Like, I think this is a big building, but that's big. We are direct recipients of ongoing, persistent grace that is filled with all of God's power. It's throughout the afflictions that we endure. His power is available. His power has been granted. His patience that we are required to demonstrate as we pursue Him is granted to us. So then lastly, Paul exhorts us that we should be characteristically giving thanks to the Father as he demonstrated to us in verse 3. Our lives should be characterized by joy and gratitude. What are we to be thankful for? He has enabled us to participate in his kingdom purposes. You see that has enabled That's also passive. We're to actively give thanks for something that we receive passively. So you want to know what to do? Here's what you do. You give thanks. You thank God for what God has done and you ask God to do what God does. He's done everything necessary for us to participate. We've contributed nothing to it. When we understand this, when we become aware of this reality that God has extended undeserved kindness towards us, our hearts naturally turn toward Him. It becomes more and more saturated with gratitude. That is the natural byproduct. 
Think about it. All of that is embedded in this seemingly simple, easy-to-follow prayer for believers, is it not? And that brings us to verse 13. And here in verse 13, something changes. We're going to close with this. See if you can identify what happens. Chapter 1, verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. All of a sudden, Paul intentionally shifts from you, which has been from verse 3 to verse 12, to us in verse 13. This change reinforces that this letter is not intended solely for the Colossian church, but is true of all believers. The rescuing and redeeming work of God the Father through the completed sacrificial work of the Son on the cross assures the Colossians and all believers that we have been set free to tangibly experience and enjoy God's will for us. Friends, we have been purposefully delivered and redeemed. We have been rescued from darkness. Paul describes our position as followers of Jesus in before and after terms. We've been rescued. I don't know about you, but that means something's dangerous about that condition. And we've been transferred by the Father through the act of salvation. Before and after. These two complementary verbs, rescued, transferred, describe the contrast and the insurmountable distance between our lostness and our savedness. And then Paul further describes the disparity between these things, between these two positional realms, as he describes the domain of darkness from which we've been rescued. We've been transferred into the kingdom of His Son. And I believe that He uses domain and kingdom intentionally to imply the controlling influence these realms have over our hearts. We've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His Son. These are polar opposite realms. You have darkness and you have light. Darkness is in verse 13, light is in verse 12. In 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14, Paul asks, what fellowship can light have with darkness? Jesus rescued us from the darkness of this world and transferred us into a different kingdom. Positionally, we are in His kingdom. We now live in His kingdom as heirs to His throne. The transfer is complete. So, saying, how can I explain this practically? The idea of online banking came to mind. When I log into my online banking app, I can see the accounts. And as I deem appropriate, I can transfer money out of one account into the other account. So let's say I may move 300 bucks from checking over into savings. When I hit confirm, it's done. 
I can see the transfer in the register. The balances show accordingly. Here's the thing. The 300 bucks didn't do anything to deserve to be transferred. The $300 can't do anything to go back over to the other account. Nothing. It has been placed there for a particular purpose for use by the owner of the account. In a similar way, the Lord rescues us from the domain of darkness. He transfers us into the kingdom of His Son. We can't make ourselves go back. We have been placed there for a particular purpose, and guys, there's nothing you can do about it. That's right. As transferees, we've been rescued from the God of this world. Not only have we been rescued, we've been granted the added benefit of redemption. Christ atoned for our sin, and in Him we have the forgiveness of sins. Paul's shift from the completed work of the Father in verses 12 to 13 to the present tense we have that we see here in verse 14 points to some ongoing permanent benefit of our salvation. Using the money analogy, it's like a dividend in a retirement account. You don't do a darn thing for it, it just kind of shows up. But spiritually and eternally speaking, we are set free from guilt. We're set free from shame. We're set free from bondage. And then we're set free and instructed and enabled and commissioned to pursue the Lord's will. That's our purpose. We have been purposefully delivered and redeemed. Our freedom's not random. It's purposeful. Paul's highlighting that we've been rescued and freed so that we might serve. So that we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. Each of the four verbs we discussed earlier found in this passage are elements of the process of walking as followers of Jesus. The Colossians' position as recipients of God's gracious, purposeful redemption underscores their undeserving status. And God's intent to rescue the lost through the work of His Son. You have a new position. In one sense, it's like a promotion you didn't deserve. You've been purposely delivered and redeemed, and therefore you should have a new perspective. Friends, when we've been redeemed, our eyes have been opened. We can recognize the hopeless state from which we were rescued. Point three of what we intend to do in 2023 is to do everything we can to reach the lost. The lost does not have eyes to see. So pray that God would do what God does. See, before the Spirit worked in our hearts, we had no idea we were lost. We had no idea we needed to be rescued. We had no idea we were slaves, but now we are free. Christ has compassionately rescued us, freeing us from slavery to sin. We're unconstrained to serve Christ and fulfill His will. 
friends, I don't know what else could drive you to grace. I don't know what else could drive you to gratitude when you recognize from which you have been freed, from which you have been redeemed, from that which you can no longer go back to. God's will for your life has never intended to be a mystery to figure out, ever. He has already faithfully provided everything you need, everything we need to fulfill His purpose in our lives. And what we see here, when we see the love that these individuals have for one another and for the world around them laid out, our purpose becomes clear. To offer a cup of life-giving water to those who are spiritually thirsty. That's our purpose. We've been purposefully delivered and redeemed to exhibit the compassion of Christ to a world in desperate need of redemption. Let's pray. Lord God, I am humbled by the opportunity to bring forth your word. Lord, I pray that you would do what you do. I pray that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will. Lord, that you would grant us spiritual wisdom and understanding. Lord, that you would enable us to walk in a manner worthy of you. Lord, give us an overwhelming desire to please you, Father. Lord, let our lives bear fruit in every work that you've prepared for us. Strengthen us, Lord, with your power that we might endure the challenges, the trials, the afflictions, and the joys that you have for us, living with exuberant joy and gratitude that's demonstrated for the world to see. Thank you for qualifying us, the disqualified, to share in your inheritance. Thank you that there is nothing we could do to disqualify us again. Thank you for delivering us from the domain of darkness. Thank you for transferring us into Jesus' kingdom through whom we have been redeemed for a purpose. Brothers and sisters, may grace be to each of you in peace from God our Father. Amen.